Today on the Lazy D&D Talk Show, we're going to talk about ways to roll lots and lots of checks with only one D20 roll. We're going to look at Chronicles of Eberron, the latest Eberron book put out by Keith Baker. We're going to talk about the monster baseline. What are When I talk about monster baseline statistics, where am I getting those from and what do I mean? What are those statistics? What are the baselines that I use to judge monsters? And we're going to talk about the vampires, my vampires, which are in MCDM's Flea Mortal's latest playtest packet. We're going to actually look at them, and I'm going to talk about some of the design that I did for them, along with our December 2022 Patreon Q&A. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things D&D. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to the monthly Q&A, a dedicated Discord channel, uncovered secrets, dedicated adventures... The City of Arches sourcebook, a ton of different material. And actually, the first thing I'm going to talk about on today's show is one of the Patreon rewards that you can get. To the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support. Every so often on YouTube, somebody leaves a comment that is really, really handy, really, really useful. And I want to thank Doomguide Morgan, who clued me into an idea that had been put in Dragon Magazine issue 113. And the idea was, I think it was called Binomial dice rolling or something like that really uh, you know r- r- strange idea but i'm like ooh, i'm a i'm i'm not a math nerd like i'm not good at math i just like math i was like i want to know more tell me about your binomial dice distribution system please and i had to go dig around for it and i took a look at it and i was like this is a really interesting idea and the whole concept is when you have lots of dice rolls that are going to be taking place, there is a variance in the number of dice rolls that are going to succeed, and it's not automatic. In the Lazy DM's Companion, my book of all kinds of tips and tricks to help streamline your D&D game, I have a section called Running Hordes, and I talk about how can you roll, or how can you make up for the fact that you're dealing dozens, maybe hundreds of dice rolls. And I have a very simple system that I use, which is called one quarter succeed. The idea is whenever you have a large horde of monsters that are attacking a character or that have to make a whole bunch of rolls, instead of figuring out all those rolls, you just assume one quarter of them succeed. And you can move that number up or down. You can add or subtract one Z and two Z, depending on like, oh, it's a paladin who's got a lot of stuff or it's somebody cast shield. You can do things to manipulate it so that it's, it's a little less than one, you know, a little less than that. But the idea that one one quarter succeed is a very powerful way of handling a lot of different dice rolls all at once. But if you want to have some variance, it doesn't have any variance to it. And sometimes people are like, I like that variance. I don't, it's not always one quarter. I want to know, is it, you know, did a lot of them hit or did a little of them hit? And the idea that you're not even rolling can bother characters. I have a trick in here for adjudicating it, which is that sometimes you can actually take the total amount, roll two dice rolls for it. And if both succeed half of them do it if one succeeds it's a quarter if zero succeed none of them hit and that works too that way at least you have some dice rolling that's a very simple way to do it it's still the way i would probably say you probably want to start with but if you want something a little crunchier if you want something a little meatier i've got an idea so a patrons of sly flourish have access to a pdf called sly flourish's uncovered secrets volume two volume one is everything that ended up in the lazy dm's companion so if you want volume one you don't want to join the patreon i don't know why you wouldn't but you can get volume one on the Patreon, that includes everything that's in the Lazy Names Companion, just not edited, not laid out, no art. But you can get Volume 2, which is only available on the Patreon. And it has a lot of stuff that either didn't make its way into the Companion, things that I thought were a little too niche to go into the Companion, or stuff I've generated since. I don't add a lot of new stuff to this, but every so often I add it. Right now it's 25 pages worth of stuff. Here's a list of all the different things. Ability check alternatives, adjudicating complex situations, classic style 5e, initiative variants, home bases, 
targets and areas effects two different kinds of monster generators a level based monster generator and a CR based monster generator lazy solo 5e you want to play D&D 5e by yourself here's a way to do it first level adventure generator very simple way death by dungeon arenas of fate encounters of the frozen north one sheet 5e a single sheet of paper front and back that has a full system of 5e that you can play Dreadful Manifestations, Monster Generator CR Edition, lots of, rolling lots of checks, which is what we're going to talk about now. And there's also a Science Fantasy Generator and a Cyberspace Generator, all available in this one. PDF, which you get by being a patron. So let's see. Rolling lots of checks is page 23. I put it near the end. It's a single sheet, and you would have to print this out and keep it handy because you will see why. So here is the check. Look at that table. The idea here is you want to you abstract a number of roles into a single role. And you can do so by either abstracting it to five roles, 10 roles, or 20 roles. So if you needed to roll 10 roles at once, instead of rolling all 10 roles, you instead find your the target number you're trying to hit and then rolling a single d20 and that tells you how many successes occurred. And we're going to we're going to we're going to run an example right now. Let me get my dice out here. Got my d20. And we're going to assume, for example, that 10 skeletons are going to attack a paladin. This paladin is a full plate shield wearing paladin. It's an AC of 20. And we know the skeletons have an attack bonus of four. So we take four, the attack bonus, subtract it from 20. And that takes us to 16. So the target number is 16. That's the number where the skeletons would have to roll in order to hit the paladin. We're doing 10 of these. So we use this, the second one here, target number for 10. We look at the, at, you look at column 16, because that's the target number. And you see there, there's a 20, 18, 16, 11, 5, and 1. So we roll, and I rolled a 9. So you look for the one that is, that is, equal to or lower than. So 11 is too low, or is too high, it's not 11, but five is there, five succeeds. So that would mean two of the 10 skeletons hit that paladin, which I think is slightly less than a quarter. How about that, right? Turns out it's kind of, kind of around a quarter. Let's say you have a cleric and the cleric is on a hill. Cleric holds up, ghouls are running up on all sides, 20 of them, 20 ghouls. You know, we'll go a little bit more complicated. 30 ghouls are piling up on these 32 ghouls. We'll make it even weirder. 32 ghouls are running up this hill. The paladin, or the, the cleric holds its holy symbol. It's a level 13 cleric. Level 13 cleric holds his holy symbol up. Blast of his radiant energy goes flowing over the ghouls. How many of those ghouls succeed? The easy way, the Mike Shea lazy DM way, would be see one quarter, 32 of them, 16, eight, eight of them would succeed. All of the rest of them are, are destroyed by the waves of undead. That's very simple. And I like that way. I like no dice rolling. Very simple. Do it in your head. You're done. But you want to be a little crunchier. You can use this table. Use your rolling lots of checks table. It's 32. The interesting is 32 means we only have to roll four dice rolls to determine 32 successes. We start with 20, right? We're going to take 20 of them. Now the DC, let's see. What's a, uh, let's say a DC is a 17 for a 12th level. Probably a 16, 16-ish, probably 16, 17. Let's say it's 16. DC is 16. Ghouls, what's their, I don't know what their wisdom save is off the top of my head. Ghouls have a zero. So they would have to roll a 16 or better to succeed on that save. So for 20 of them, we go to column 16 and we roll. 20 of them, I rolled a 10. A 10 is eight. Five of those 20 succeed. 15 of them are destroyed. So, so far we have five that succeeded. Now we do 10 because we have 32, right? So now we do 
10 to see the bank. Same thing, target number 16, roll that one. That is an eight. 16 and eight means two, so seven so far have succeeded. And then we roll the final two individually. One of those fails, one of those succeeds. So nine of the 32 ghouls succeed on their saving throws. All of the rest of them are destroyed. I don't know what 32 minus nine is. 30 minus nine would be 21. 23, I think it sounds like 23. 23 of the ghouls are disintegrated by blasts of radiant light while nine ghouls kind of shield themselves from the blow and then come running up the hill. Not bad, took a little longer, right? And so what was the one quarter succeed? What did I come up with? I said eight. Turns out mine's really close. Yeah, it turns out that that mine's really, really straightforward. But I liked this idea. I liked this idea enough that I spent Thursday, I think, Thursday or Friday, working up this table, doing, figuring it all out, figuring out what it looked like. It's still not perfect. I think I want to tweak things a little bit. I want to put like the dice range number in here so that you know, like, where did you land when you did your roll? That's the one you pull. I think that'll make it a little easier in trying to do the equal to or less than. But it's straightforward. If you're interested in this, you like this idea, you're a math nerd, you don't like that the one quarter succeed is too arbitrary, you think, and instead you want something that's a little math crunchier, this sheet, you could print it out, stick it on your, stick in your thing, maybe stick it in your DM's workbook so you have it on hand if you want to do dice rolling. It's a, not a bad way to handle a whole lot of rolls. You could do, you could do hundreds of rolls. You could do a hundred rolls for 5d20. That's pretty good. I got feedback on this from people. I got feedback from friends of mine, other designers who looked at it, and immediately they went <sighs> like vampires with sunlight. They're like, oh God, tables and math. I got a lot of people like, oh, you're redoing Thacko again. Are you crazy? Hey, cool, man. You don't like it. That's great. I don't mind. That's why I have three words. I have this whole table with all of these charts, three tables, all these cells, really a lot of stuff going on in here. If this is too complicated for you, I'm on your side and I have an alternative and I can replace all of this with three words, one quarter succeed. If you use one quarter succeed, really easy rule, really close. You saw it uh, twice. I did two examples of both cases. I was within one of the number of that succeeded or failed. One quarter succeed, really easy, very little math. Do it in your head. Whenever a saving, whenever lots of monsters have to make a saving throw, assume one quarter of them succeed in the save, the other three quarters fail. And probably you just want to remove them from the table. Same if you have a bunch of monsters that are attacking somebody, you don't want to roll all the ro attack rolls, assume one quarter succeed. Many times you're doing it in the player's favor. If the player is like, I don't like that, you didn't even roll. You're like, I could roll, but you're going to get hit more. And they're like, no, I'm good. Go ahead with the one quarter succeed. They're actually getting the benefit of the situation most of the time. Situations like disadvantage or shield and stuff. And that's all covered in the Lazy DMs Companion. You can, you can see all that stuff. So this is for people who don't like, they think that's too simple. They think that one quarter succeed is too simple. They want something more. This is probably the way that I would recommend next. Rolling lots of checks. Available right now to patrons of Sly Flourish. If you are a patron of Sly Flourish already, go to your Uncovered Secrets Volume 2. It's in your rewards. If you go to your rewards post there, Uncovered Secrets Volume 2 is in there. In Uncovered Secrets Volume 2 is this Roll Lots of Checks page that you can try out. Thanks to Doom Guide Morgan for that recommendation on Dragon Magazine 113 to take a look at that. That was really cool. Keith Baker is the creator of Eberron, and Keith has been writing some wonderful books available on the DMs Guild. Links in the show notes below to his books. And he just put out a new one called Chronicles of Eberron. This is Keith Baker's latest book that kind of digs deep into what's going with Eberron. Keith Baker has done Exploring Eberron before. I have reviewed that on this show as well. You can find a link to that in the show notes below. Excellent book that covers. That one is like half 
material for digging deeper into Eberron and then half of an adventure. The new one is character options and, and, and lore for Eberron. It's really Keith Baker's direct expansion on what's going on in Eberron. I did receive a review copy of this book. So the book that you were seeing was provided to me in order to do this review and to show you what the book has to offer. It is a 200-page book. It costs just shy of $30 for the PDF. A little bit costly, right? That's, that's kind of high. But it's beautiful. It's a really good-looking book. Still pretty high for a PDF. You can also pick up a premium hardcover PDF version of the book and the PDF for 66 bucks. It's high because print-on-demand costs are really high. So that's worth considering. But that's not a bad deal. If you really want to have a copy of this in hardcover, I did not get the hardcover. I just have the PDF. But if you wanted a physical version of it and you want the PDF, that's actually not a bad deal because the, you're getting the PDF included in it. And as you can see, the PDF itself is $28. So a little high in price. Good on content, though. And we're going to take a look at it now. So Chronicles of Eberron is split into two main sections. You have a whole section about character, character driven stuff. What are, you know, new, new racial variants, class options, other new character options, background stuff, things that players of Eberron will be interested in. And then a huge, let's see, that's the, that's the mechanics index. That's really nice. And then another half of the book really dives deeper into the lore of a lot of different sections and areas that the core Eberron Rising from the Last War book did not cover. So if you're looking for this deeper dive in Eberron, if you're running a long-term Eberron campaign, this I ran a long Eberron campaign. I ran like a 14-month Eberron campaign. And I would have loved to have had this book on hand because there's a lot of details that are going on in here. I am a really big fan of deep lore in game worlds now. I'm playing Midgard. I've been talking about the Midgard world book for a while. I really like that. And for me, I'm as I get older, I'm less interested in mechanical stuff and I'm far more interested in lore. I'm very interested in reading deep into the lore of the worlds that are going out. And I think it's really cool to get the lore directly from the guy who invented the world in the first place. The neat thing is this the only way that he can actually publish a book like this is through the DMs Guild. So it's really cool that he has the opportunity to be able to publish this on the DMs Guild. But I think part of that, and the reason why the price is high is because publishing on the DMs Guild, they take a big cut, all kinds of different things. Still, I think it's definitely worth it. I would I would have bought it. Absolutely. Had I not given a review copy, absolutely would have paid for it. And if I didn't like it, I wouldn't I wouldn't be reviewing it. That's the other other thing to consider. I don't review things I don't like. So let's take a quick flip through. Beautiful artwork. Really, really good artwork. As good as any RPG book you're going to get. As good, you know, as good, I would say, as books that you get either from Wizards of the Coast or anybody else. Wizards of the Coast production value is really through the roof. They do amazing products. So is everything as good as what they do? No. Is it really, really good? Yes. And it's as good as any third-party book that I've certainly seen. So I, I, I really enjoy it. Really fun introduction about what it was like to do Eberron and that he has, talks about the, the fact that he has this opportunity to use the DMs Guild to publish more material that Wizards isn't going to publish themselves. So we can really dive deep into this. Excellent lore. Lots of stuff about what information everybody knows. Characters know. Everybody else knows. You know, really good, really, you know, good, good material there. Good, good way for the players to dive into the lore. One of the things I like about Rising from the Last War as well is that you can hand them the book and be like these few chapters in the beginning. That can be your session zero guide. That can be your understanding of the world. You read as much or as little as you want expanding on that further saying these are the things you know about the kyber and the daleker and all the all the other information here good lore useful for dms but also useful for players and that's that's really a neat a neat style writing writing material that is useful for both dms and players this is where you get into this kind of like cool unearthed arcana idea of 
let's talk about like specific things. What is the armor like in the world? What are the new weapon systems like? If you look at crossbows, there's a bunch of descriptions of different crossbows. What does the armor look like for the different factions that exist in the world? Good detail if you really want to spell things out. Here are all different types of crossbows. Some are very arcane, some are very mechanical, depending on the group you're with, is the kind of crossbow they would get. We don't think about like describing crossbows as a bit of lore. I kind of like the idea that there's a crossbow silencer. Isn't the whole point of crossbows that they're kind of silent already? But I guess if you really want to be silent, spell bolts, different am ammunition. Then the nobility. What is the nobility like? Neat thing about a book like this is it can kind of go all over the place. You can hit details in different areas. You've got Rising from the Last War. That's your core Eberron book. It really describes everything at a surface level. But then you want to dive deep. What are the royal, what's, what's royalty like? What is it like to be knighted? I really like this. Noble background variants. Again, a lot of stuff going on for characters, a lot of different things that are lore based, which I'm very happy with. You know, I don't need lots of chewy mechanics. There are chewy mechanics in here. So if you're into your chewy mechanics, you can get them. I'm really more interested in the lore that's going on. And one of the reasons why is so many, this gets in a little bit of my, my D&D Beyond rant and my D&D Beyond worry. The more players rely on tools like d and Beyond to do their character building or like Roll, even Roll20 of Fantasy Grounds and Foundry and stuff like that if they don't own the other material. It's harder to include third-party mechanics into your game. But lore is very easy to include in your game. It doesn't matter which platform you're using. It doesn't matter if you're on d and Beyond or using a paper sheet or you're using any of the other ones. When you have a PDF like this, you can just share that kind of information with people. And they can use the lore. So the, the lore is very transferable. You don't have to worry about one D&D &D and where it's going. When you have lore like this, the lore will still work. It doesn't matter. Lore lasts forever. Mechanics? Depends on your tools. Depends on which version you're playing. All that kind of stuff. Again, beautiful artwork. The, the symbols, these symbols are really useful. I like to take screenshots of these and show them to my players during my game. I think that's a, a, a good way to go. Just diving deep into the history of things that are going on here, into you know how the cultures all work together. Very good deep dive. Again, really cool art. Look at that cool art. Ancestries to Eberron. How can you include ancestries to them? The idea of reskinning. This is actually kind of what one D and D does. Is oh, you want to change up your 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 species is from this group, but your ancestry is with others. How do you do it? Reskin it. Right. Just just reskin stuff. A lot of good talk here. There's some other things I want to cover. This is where you can kind of get into the specifics. The, the Tarnadal elves. We want to learn about this one particular branch of elves and what they're like. All kinds of stuff in here. Again, this is all sort of the player. It's player focused, but let's be honest. I don't think a lot of players are going to dive deep into this. It's good information that if there is a player who is very interested in the lore can read this, but also very useful for DMs. And they know this is information I can pass directly to my players. I don't have to worry about keeping, keeping a lot of secrets going on in here. Very cool, very cool artwork. Here we do have some mechanics like an, an oath of veneration, which is tied, you know, and again, I think I think actually subclasses are a little easier to pass along than other kind of big juicier mechanics because it's basically one page. You could print this one thing out and set it aside with your character and say, yeah, I'm using the oath of veneration and and, and work with that. So subclasses are pretty straightforward to, to, to include. A little bit of random tables. Where are your warbands from? Gnomes, you want to learn all about gnomes? The gnomes of Lorgalon are all included in here. Zill descendants, all kinds of interesting stuff there. Little stat block, Lorgalon cannonball, elemental. Look at that art. Isn't that great? Gnomes being happy. Oh, he's got a knife behind his back. Somebody's not going to be happy for very long. Another section on gnomes. You want to play a gnome? Look at that. 
That's cool. The Dark Six. So I actually, I, I created like a little Eberron random generator for things. Like if they found old monuments of things. And I, I capitalized a lot on the Dark Six. I, I definitely like the Dark Six. And they're they're covered in small one paragraph bits in Rising from the Last War. They have a lot more details of the Dark Six in this chapter. This would be great lore, including symbols and stuff like that. To use to flavor all of our common D&D things, dungeons, monuments, weird sculptures or statues, weird cults that you might run into, all that kind of stuff. You can flavor them with the details that you find in here. That's something that's kind of interesting about how D&D works. A lot of the core fundamentals of D&D are pretty straightforward stuff that we've been doing for many of us have been doing for many, many years. And it's, you know, very common. It's when you wrap a story around it. When you wrap the details, you wrap the history, you wrap the religions, you wrap this other stuff around these sort of common featureless things like dungeons or towers or ruins or castles or keeps or cults or armies or soldiers. Those are all kind of common across groups. But when you wrap them in the lore, that's when they become really rich and full of texture. And it's book, books like this that really, that really offer that up. Lots of information about the Dark Six. I think it's really, really cool. Again, next time I'm playing Eberron, this book is going to be at my side. I'll probably buy the physical version so I can sit and read it. My sort of, the, the, the sort of way I think about physical books and physical books and, and PDFs, I'll buy a PDF of just about everything. I don't care if I plan on using it or not. I buy, first of all, I buy tons of books and I pick them all up and I, I just like to have the PDF and I like to have them on hand and I mark them and I kind of go back and read them. If I'm going to use them in my game, even if I'm going to run online, I like to have the physical versions of the book too. So I don't mind if I, if I think I'm going to be running a game, I like to get the physical book. If I was going to, the next time I'm going to, I'm going to run an Eberron game, if I'm going to use a lot of the lore that's in here, and I probably am, I would definitely pick up the physical book version of this in order to have that on hand and be able to read it. It's easier than kind of skimming through a PDF for me, but I like having both. I like, I like having both a digital version and a physical version when I'm going to run it a game. If I'm not going to run it at a game, I'll pick it up. And, and read it and enjoy it and store it and oftentimes go back to it. Here we have like new character options, new bard colleges, some new kind of domain spells. This is where we get into the crunchier bits of what of what the book has to offer for characters. Look at spells of the six. Ooh, some new spells. New spells are always handy because you can actually tie them to one use magic items. You can tie them to special, you know, maybe a magic item that lets you cast a thing only one time. So I actually like to see spells are very, I've talked about this before. Spells are a very reusable component that DMs can really use. So we think of them as player focused things, but really they're often little small bits of mechanics that we can tie to lots of things going on again, monuments that cast it or enemies that use them. There's, there's lots of different ways that we can think about, about spells. Part two is the vault. The vault is a DM focused session. It's interesting. Venture Maidens did this too. I'm seeing more creators that are sort of adding in DM advice into their source books. I think that's good. I don't, I don't, I don't think that there's a problem with that. I think if you are, if you have ideas about ways to kind of get the game to go in a certain direction, ways that you think really work well to run a game, I don't know why you wouldn't put them in there, even if they've been put in before. Session Zeros, I've now seen multiple books. I've got it in my book. Venture Maidens has it. This one has it. I think there's, I don't know if there's Session Zero descriptions in Tasha's. I think there is. So we're seeing like the idea of the Session Zero is, is now pretty baked in to a lot of the stuff that we're seeing. And it's a really valuable tool. So how do you, how do you run a Session Zero that is focused around an Eberron campaign? This one, this, this section offers, offers that advice. How to do character introductions. 
what do you do to run a journey? This is a very common problem. What are the things that you do? I've talked about on this show. What are the things that you can put in place when characters are moving from, from place to place? What are things that you can do to make the journey interesting? Nice, nice section that talks about doing it. The montage talks about the montage this is like a 13th age concept. I first saw this in 13th age where you bring up like, here's this problem. How does your character solve it? Or what problem does your character run into when you're going through and how do you solve it? Talks about that too more manifest zones these kind of weird magical zones you want you want some extra ones here's a here's a list of 12 new manifest zones and then we have descriptions of locations in the world of eberron that have not been fully filled out like the sea what are some of the locations the Kutoa, the dreamers in the deep that's a whole section for them new Kutoa stat blocks the astral plane what is the astral plane like in an eberron world whole big section on that more on the overlords Right, these it's super powerful immortal archfiends. There's a whole section about what does archfiend actually mean? Does it mean that what we think it means? What are these things? I saw there's a whole section of that. Whole thing about the statistics of the overlords. You will find overlord statistics in here. I think there's some in Exploring Eberron as well. And then there's a couple that are in Rising from the Last War. So I don't know if we have stat blocks for all of them at this point, but we have a lot of them. But we certainly have a lot of lore. And again, I love the lore. This is what really makes me happy. This is the stuff that I really, really dig is when you you have these history because this is the stuff like i'm not going to come up with all of this this is a ton of work right and even though it's like yeah 28 bucks that's a lot of money for a pdf but boy how much would you have to pay me to come up with this a lot more than 28 bucks how much should you be should value your time at more than the 28 bucks it would take you to put together this amount of lore for your everon game so it's really in that case it's a really good deal when you think about the amount of effort, the amount of editing, the amount of work, and the fact that you're drawing it directly from Keith Baker's mind, that is what's that is what's really cool. I had the opportunity over on Mastodon. Keith Baker recently joined Mastodon. I'm over on Mastodon. And Keith Baker asked, what is your... I, I asked Keith Baker. I had the opportunity. He, he said, bring up any questions you want. I'm like, wait, well, I'm going to bring up some questions. And so what is your favorite bit of Chronicles Eberron, this new book that came out? And he said that he loved the Centria lenses, which let the Kalishtar kill you with kindness. The amazing details on the map of Redria and the corrupted magic of the shadow. But his favorite bit is probably the ghost stories chapter. Let's take a look at those sections. Where are the ghost stories? So ghost stories of Eberron was something he said he really, really liked. Has a little content warning. Hey, be a little careful. The, the reality of undead. The, 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 the Mabarian zones. I did a lot with Mabar. Not Babar. Mabar different types of undead and what they mean in this world. This was the section on it that he really liked. There's a shark, an undead shark. That's, that's pretty bad. Lots of really cool stuff. Ghosts, banshees, and dawn specters. One thing I think is interesting is there are undead in Eberron that are not evil. There are undead that are actually good. There's that whole talk of the whole, the whole legion that's got undead working for them. Vampires, what are the vampires like in Eberron? So again, you take these common concepts of vampire and then you wrap it in Eberron lore. What are the things you have there? Really, really cool. That's just a fun way to fun way to wrap a lot of lore around the common things we have. So that is Chronicles of Eberron. You can pick up Chronicles of Eberron on the DMs Guild. There is a link down in the show notes below. Thanks very much to, to Keith Baker and his publishing house for sending me this preview copy. Really, really cool stuff, and I definitely recommend it. So on this show, I have reviewed, like last week, I reviewed a bunch of monsters from Dragonlance, and I had this like little bit of head math that I was using to evaluate monsters. And I had a bunch of people that said, what is that? Like, where are you coming up with these numbers? Where do they come from? You bring, you bring up these things, where does it come from? So first of all, I, th I would talk about what those numbers are. When I am baselining a monster, when I'm looking at a monster thinking, how much damage does it do? How many hit points? 
experience does it have? And I have this sort of thing that's based on its challenge rating. Where is that coming from? Well, the the if you want the numbers themselves, I have them in the Lazy DMs Companion on page four under a section called Improvised Statistics. And the idea here is what are the statistics you would come up for for a creature or an object or some threat, whatever it is, uh, that you came up with on the fly. And it's all based on whatever the challenge rating is. So you start off by what challenge rating does this thing have? And then you add your statistics to it. You've noticed that I don't really talk about armor class or DC or attack bonus most of the time. I'm really focused on two two elements to it, hit points and damage output. Those are the two things I pay attention to. The reason why is that armor class isn't really something that follows challenge rating. Armor class really just makes sense for whatever the monster is. If it's a great big flabby zombie, it's going to have an AC of eight. If it is a, you know, a huge golem armored and with a shield, it could have 20 or 22 or even more. The armor, the armor class is based on the story of the monster and could go all over the place. Even if it's a great big, huge flabby zombie, it could be a giant flab zombie CR 22. It could be a giant, like it's a great big, terrible zombie and still have an AC of eight, right? It would be hit points. That would, that would, that would matter. You could, so, so armor class can go up and down regardless of the challenge rating and DCs and attack bonuses, not quite as much, but most of the time I don't have to worry about DCs and attack bonuses being way off. There's lots of calculations that go into it. Only rarely do I come into a monster where it's attack bonus is really out of place for its challenge rating. An example where that is the case are the star elves, the astral elves in playing in Spelljammer. I just ran them. They have a very low attack bonus for the amount of damage they do and for the CR of their of their attack. It's really weird. It's plus three, but it's really easy to fix. And that's a rare, it's rare for that to be as off as, as other things are. But the two that are, in my opinion, are often off are hit points and damage. And to me, it's very simple. How much damage should a monster be doing? In my opinion, generally, seven damage per challenge rating up to CR 19, CR 20 and above, probably 10 damage per CR. That's the math. And here I only talk about seven damage for CR, which really seven to 10 isn't a really big deal when you get to CR 20, but that's about as much damage as I expect a monster to put out. Hit points, 15 to 20 per challenge rating. Again, depends on how much in the improvised statistics here, I come up with 20 per CR. That is definitely one approach. And so a way that if you want to dissect that math and be like, yeah, sure, Mike, but seven per challenge rating for damage output and 15 to 20 hit points per damage for, per CR for hit points. But where did that come from? Well, so it, it, a few different places. One, it came from the Dungeon Master's Guide. The Dungeon Master's Guide has descriptions of challenge rating and what has, what, how much damage you have at different challenge ratings, dissecting that. But also Paul Hughes, who's the author of the Level Up 5e Monstrous Menagerie, has done a lot of work doing two things, looking at the Dungeon Master's Guide math and dissecting the monsters that exist inside the Monster Manual and other monster books. And he has come up with general math and equations that I simplified a little bit on how much damage, what, what can you expect a monster to be roughly doing? And his changes a little bit up, you know, it's like one, three, five, eight, and 10 for zero, an eighth of a CR, a fourth of a CR, half a CR. I didn't bother with those level, levels of, of detail. And then he has five times CR plus five for levels two to seven, and then five times CR for damage at eight. I kicked mine up a little bit. I think actually the damage from CR eight monsters should be a little bit higher than that, which is why I have seven. And the five times CR plus five ends up being pretty close to seven. And so that, that figures out. Same thing with hit points. He says 15 times CR plus 15 or 15 CR hit points. That's why I say 15 to 20. A lot of times I think at higher CRs, you're going to need more hit points to account for the fact that the characters have more damage. So for me, the two numbers that I really look at 
7 damage per challenge rating for damage output. And again, that could be split among multiple attacks or whatever. And 15 to 20 hit points per challenge rating for the amount of hit points it has. If it has less than that, the monsters are going to be weaker. So when you see me looking at a monster and, and baselining it, and, and you look at some D&D monsters, you look at some monsters Wizards of the Coast are putting out, and the numbers are way higher than that. So it's not like I'm picking numbers that are always higher than whatever they choose they many times are doing damage that's way higher than this particularly lower challenge le levels lower challenge monsters seem to hit harder for their challenge rating than higher cr monsters and i don't think there's a good reason for that i think that higher cr monsters should be dishing out more damage because characters have way more ways to handle the damage that they're taking so i think the damage should actually be going up not down you can see in paul's example here which i'll link to down in the show notes below you can see that his challenge rating two well basically first to seventh level are doing an average of five damage per challenge rating higher than the ones that are going eighth and above why did the damage go down his business card his math here is based on what they're actually doing in the monster manual and i just think that's weird i don't know why monster damage should go down at a higher the ratio should go down at a higher level at higher crs when we know it's not like character's ability to take damage goes down no their healing spells get better their ways to mitigate damage goes better their armor class goes way up their synergies among characters you think about paladins with their whole aura of protections all these different things are making it much harder to do damage i think the damage should be that, that ratio should scale up which is again why i say 10, 10 damage per challenge rating at cr 20 and above if i were king for a day that's where i'd be putting it so you want to know where my math comes from check out paul hughes's analysis of monster damage i'll link to a bunch of his articles below and that's some of some of it's coming from there some of it's coming from the Dungeon master's guide some of it's coming from my own experience that's where i get those numbers you want to know what the numbers are check out the lazy dm's companion you can pick it up in the sly flourish bookstore down below pdf or physical versions beautiful offset printed physical versions and on page four are the improvised statistics i think the sample chapter also includes this so if you want to see what those numbers actually are they're in the sample chapters which you can get for free in the Monstrous Menagerie by Level Up 5e, which I think is an excellent, excellent monster book. If you are looking for something that has monsters that are a little bit more polished than what you will find in the regular standard monster manual, the Monstrous Menagerie by Level Up 5e is a fantastic book. Paul Hughes, who wrote all those articles, was the lead designer on it. Excellent stuff. And the monsters really hit solidly for where you expect. Here is the table that he talks about for the, the, the statistics for monsters by challenge rating. And you can see like the 1,295 hit points, 65 damage fits the just the basic straightforward math that he was using before but this actually has the table so you can pick and let's see with 10 yeah that is right is five plus five he's using the exact same math that he's using in the business card to generate this list that's what 16.5 hit points per challenge rating roughly 21 is 330 so yeah right right around there hit points are and the hit points 15 per cr is probably not bad 20 per cr is probably a little bit high it depends on how easy they're hit if they have a lot of defensive capabilities 20 per cr is probably too low but boy lower than 15 and that monster is going to die pretty fast because players have lots of characters have lots of ways to dish out lots of damage last year Matt Colville and MCDM did a Kickstarter for a monster book called Flea Mortals. I did a Kickstarter spotlight when it was going on and did very well. 27,000 backers for the book made $2 million. Really big Kickstarter. And I was, I'm very, very lucky that one of my, my good friends, James Intercasso, works at MCDM and is actually the lead, I think is the lead designer, lead editor of Flea Mortals. 
And I went to my friend James, as one does with one's friends, and I said, hey, James, you better not F up those vampires. I love vampires, and I want to see some kick-ass vampires and flea mortals. So don't you screw up the vampires. And James said, well, how about you do the vampires, smartass? And I was like, I just... I'm, and what are you going to say? No, no, I'm not going to do vampires for your $2 million monster book. When someone asks you if you're going to do the vampires in a $2 million monster book for MCDM, you say yes. So I said, absolutely. I'll totally do that. And then I got really scared because now I've got to be the one that makes monsters that don't suck. Right. So I spent a fair bit of time building monsters. Thought uh, vampires, I think, I think vampires might be my favorite monster and I don't feel like they have been served well in all different RPG products. I don't think they are served well at all in the monster manual. So I was very excited to work on this project and very eager to do it. And I did it. And I sent my monsters to James and James said, thank you very much. And then I didn't hear anything. And I'm like, oh my God, he hates my vampires. James hates my vampires. They didn't work at all. And then he's like, no, actually they did really well. And I was like, oh good. And so what MCDM has been doing is they have been putting out play tests of their monsters to Kickstarter backers. And I talked to James and said, hey, can I talk about this on the show? And he said, absolutely. Talk about it on the show as much as you want. So everything I'm talking about, he gave me the thumbs up to talk about. And I wanted to show you my vampires for Flea Mortals. So this is from Packet 4. They've been putting out playtest packets. Each one is a good chunk of monsters. 50 pages, roughly, of, of monsters that they're putting out there. And they're, this is like their public playtest to the Kickstarter backers to say, hey, we've tested these. They have gone through design. They've gone through development. They've gone through playtesting. But we want you guys to have a look at them as well. And they've been putting them out in these semi-public playtests. It's you and your 26,999 other friends that backed the Kickstarter. And I was really nervous because I'm like, oh, man. Oh, look, he even have a table of contents here. My vampires made the cut. Here they are. So there's lots of different monsters in here. I'm not going to talk about all the monsters. I thought, you, you know, you can go see it, all different kinds of fun, cool monsters, all different size. And all of these have been great. But again, 27,000 people are seeing this. I don't really have to do a lot of promo. But what I would like to do is talk about the design, the, the, talk about the vampires that I have in here, show them off, and talk about some of the design that I put into it. I thought that would be an interesting thing to talk about. So I was commissioned to do four vampires. Three of them are in this book and are going to be in Flea Mortals. A fourth vampire, a lower challenge rating vampire, was a specialist vampire that is in an adventure. I think it's an adventure that is coming out that MCDM is publishing. So there are three different kinds of vampires. A, a redo of the vampire spawn, slightly more powerful vampire spawn that feels a little bit more vampire-y. A straight vampire, your, your straight traditional vampire, and a really powerful solo vampire, in this case, a named vampire named after a creature that is in Matt Colville's game, Count Rodar Von Glauer. The campaign that Matt Colville uses for Van Glauer is, in fact, his Chain of Asheron campaign that he ran. And that what Van Glauer is the stat block for that campaign. In that case, I got a little bit of the lore about what this vampire is like and then did the design of Van Glauer around the lore that I got, recognizing that this is intended to be a very reskinnable powerful kick-ass monster that you kick-ass vampire that you can use in any of your games so let's take a look at them the vampire spawn slightly higher than the vampire spawn that is in the monster man cr5 instead of cr4 112 hit points so a fair number of hit points all the kinds of things that you would say five should be what i say so actually that's pretty beefy yeah it's about 20 cr 20 hit points per cr a little less a little more right 20 per cr would be 100 so it's a little hit points are a little bit higher for its challenge rating. Lots of different things, acrobatics, stealth, persuasion, intimidation, perception. So I wanted this to be a, a, like a pretty good low CR vampire. Your straight run of the mill type one vampire, right? 
makes two attack, two claw attacks, and they can replace attack with bite. So they are able to attack a little bit more often than the typical vampire spawn attacks. Plus seven to hit, nice high attack bonus. Eleven slashing damage, and the target is grappled. While grappled, the medium smaller creature doesn't creature doesn't have the spawn speed, so it can grab you and then run with you while you're grappled. It can it can it can pull away. Does eleven slashing damage on that hit, so it can do twenty two points of damage at CR five with just the claws. But it could also instead do a bite. The bite does seven piercing and seven necrotic, and the seven necrotic your hit points are reduced by an amount equal to this. So one of the things that I wanted to do with this vampire spawn is say that. The different levels of vampires have different levels of life drain. The vampire spawn, when it hits you, drains your life, and you can get that restored with a long rest. You can also get it restored with curative spells that, that let you get your hit points off. But we'll see the other vampires, you can't just sleep it off. It actually gets harder. The other thing I wanted with a vampire spawn was sp speed. I really sat down and said, what is it like to be a vampire what kind of things do we expect from a vampire for low vampires their charm probably isn't that good but they're still fast and they still are strong and they hit hard so which is why they have like a strength of 18 and a dex of 18 they're both strong and fast vampires are strong and fast and a charisma is not bad but inhuman speed as a bonus action they can move up to their speed so that means they can really really move fast they can they can really they can really zip around i think one thing that changed in the design is i used to let this not provoke opportunity attacks Probably a bit too much, particularly a lot of these. They're just zipping around like TIE fighters. So it'll take an opportunity attack, but that's okay. A, opportunity attacks are fun for players to take. And B, it has a lot of hit points, so I can take some opportunity attacks and not get totally screwed. So that's the regular, that's the low-level vampire spawn. Now we look at the straight vampire. And the straight vampire, lots of hit points, 200 hit points, AC 18. This is more like your Strahd level vampire if you threw some legendary resistances onto it. You, you notice it doesn't have a whole big block of like the things that, that bother a vampire instead it's all stuck into like the resting place when it drops to zero and it's not in sunlight running water or it's resting place it can teleport to its resting place vampires and paralyzed until they take a long rest you kind of pack it all in there it has resistance to turn undead and attacks makes two claw attacks and a possible bite if possible a bite attack now these claw attacks do drain life right they, they do necrotic damage they don't lower your hit point maximum but they do extra necrotic damage i really tried to think about like what is the old first edition vampire like i went back and looked at every vampire from every edition so what are the cool concepts of these vampires that i think we should have and i think vampires doing necrotic damage on hits i think that makes sense so they do 12 slashing damage and 10 necrotic damage 22 points on each of its two claw attacks and it can do a bite attack the bite attack and it, it can grapple and i think it still doesn't restrain is that right moving with grappling no and in this case, when the vampire, the full vampire hits you, it restrains you. So now it has advantage. So it means if it can grab with a claw, it can restrain you, hit you with another claw with advantage, and then bite you with advantage. The bite is any creature that is incapacitated, restrained, or grappled. Probably going to be grappled and restrained. And in this case, does 8 piercing damage plus 10 necrotic damage, 18 points. And that 10 necrotic damage reduces your hit point maximum. And it can only be cured, reversed by cure ailments or a fourth level or higher, or a greater restoration spell or a similar effect. You cannot get your hit points back just by resting. I wanted it to matter a little bit more because you think about the old school level draining. This is what an old school level drain was like. That the level drain you got and you couldn't just sleep it off. Like your drain, your hit points were, your, your, your level was lowered. Lowering levels is crazy hard to do. You got to recalculate your whole character sheet. So that doesn't make sense. But taking away hit points and having that be, you've got to use a powerful spell to get rid of still very doable the characters that are going to fight somebody like this probably have a way to get those hit points back but you can't just sleep it off that was that was the big idea and if they die they become a vampire spawn exsanguinating mist 
The vampire, along with anything it's wielding, can turn into a cloud of blood-sucking mist. They flow through creatures. They can go all over the place. And they through everybody they go through has to make a DC 18 con save or take 35 necrotic damage. Big piles of damage. You can basically swarm through all of the characters and drain life out of them. 35 damage a hit. DC 18. And they take half if they fail. And then transforms and moves to another spot. Fun. Now, the bonus action here is kind of fun. It has two different things it can do. So we have the inhuman agility. This one does move faster than the vampire spawn. So fast you cannot provoke opportunity attacks. This guy can zip all over the place, right? But the beguile is my replacement for charm. Charm, in my opinion, is very thematic for vampires and also really boring or could be really boring for players. When you're charmed a lot, you lose a lot of agency over your character. It's not great. I was running my Curse of Strahd game recently and had a vampire that was charming all the time. And, you know, it's okay when the players are into it, but if they're not into it, you're just taking their agency away. So I wanted something that felt like a charm. I wanted something that really felt like it still has this big ability to beguile you, but doesn't take away your agency as a character. You can still do stuff. And the beguile is the way to do it. It can target somebody as a bonus action, make them do a DC 18 wisdom saving throw. When they fail, they use their reaction to move towards an ally and make a melee attack against them. So that way you can have the fighter go away and attack the wizard, right? But it's on a reaction. So they're still back to who they were at the end of that at the end of that round, they don't have to come back again. So it gives the theme of the charm. It still gives you that fun of player versus player violence caused by the fact that the vampire is charming one, but you're not taking the overall agency. If you look at the, the vampire from the monster manual, they can put a charm on somebody. And as long as the vampire or their allies don't attack that person, the charm never goes away or it doesn't go away for like an hour. The vampire can keep charming him. That's really sucks because then you're like, hey, fighter, you're charmed. Go in the corner. We'll get to you later. And that they can never break the charm. Even somebody hitting them can't get rid of it. You have to like cast spells or something to break charm. This one, as MCDM says, very action oriented. You're getting this character to go do a thing off their turn, not taking their agency away, but still making it look like a charm. That was something I was very happy to do. Very proud to see in this book. And I'm glad to see it made through. Then they have a reaction. If when an ally, the vampire seek takes damage, the vampire can command the ally to move up to their speed without provoking. So they can take damage. They can move it away. This is kind of a neat one. A little bit of a commandery sort of thing. Like you can have that when you, when the vampire is an ally that gets hit, it can move it away. So it won't take another hit that way. Multi-attacks, you can stop a multi-attack and kind of a fun reaction. And then there's the big guy, Rodar von Glauer, Count Rodar von Glauer, sort of like Superstrad, right? You can think of this guy as like Superstrad. I have the distinct privilege, my understanding, that the only monsters that killed more characters during playtesting was at first level with kobolds. But if you took first, we all know that first level is a really lethal level. If you took first level characters out of the playtest group for MCDM monsters, Von Glauer killed more characters than anybody else by far, according to James Intercasso. He told me that. I was very proud to know that my CR19 vampire has a lot of blood under his fingernails. And that, that makes me happy. So, because as you know, high challenge monsters often don't. So Von Glauer, big vampire, lots of things going on. One, he's got a great big life-draining greatsword that he attacks with. He's really cool. He also has these like ethereal spears that float around. One of the important things with the solo, 
got to make sure to be able to attack your backline characters or you're not really going to bring a threat. You don't want him to get pinned down by one frontline character. So he's got these spears. One of the other design considerations for MCDM is they don't like just straight legendary resistances. It's not bad to have monsters have a way to get rid of abilities, but it should also hurt them somehow. They should take something for that. And the idea here was that they, they that Von Glara has these things called spears of sacrifice, that spear sacrifice. He has these spears that are floating around him. He has three of them and he can destroy those to basically rid of an ability that is on him or to make a successful check, right? There's three flaming spheres, summon a free hand and on his turn, no extra card. When he fails an ability check or saving throw, and note his ability check or saving throw, so you can't just grapple his ass. He can, he can automatically succeed on ability check. That's a new one that we have to all put in there. You can destroy the spears to succeed on the ability check or saving throw instead. Once he destroys all three spears, he cannot use the spear of the damn attack or spear sacrifice until the next dusk when he manifests the destroyed spear. So those are his legendary resistances, but they also serve him as weapons in the game. So you're, you're taking away his ability to attack as you are hitting him with spells that are save or suck. A cool thing. He's immune to turn undead because they should be immune to turn undead. He fights with Sanguinous, a life-draining greatsword manifested from shadow. He can conjure Sanguinous in his free hand on his turn, no action required. When he's killed, the sword dissipates into black mist. So he has a cool, misty, life-draining sword. He makes two Sanguinous attacks and then can make a Spear of the Damned attack for each Spear sacrifice that he has remaining. Sanguinous is plus 12 to hit, 13 slashing, plus 14 necrotic, and it reduces their hit point maximum. And that re reduction must be removed by a fourth order, a fourth level spell or greater, including greater restoration. So it can really suck your life out of your body. If you die, you turn into vampire spawn. Spear of the Damned, plus 12 to hit, range 60 feet, 10 force damage. And if the target is a creature, they are knocked prone and restrained as a Spear of Darkness impales them. Creature can attempt to free themselves or another creature within reach by using an action and bonus to make a DC 20 athletics check. On a success, the creature is freed. The creature is also freed if, if Rogar summons that Spear. So he can pin someone down with a Spear then you can also zip over to them and then start hitting him with the sword, right? He's got the Beguile, same Beguile that we talked about before. DC 19, make, make your friend go attack your other friend. And he can move without provoking his opportunity attack as a bonus action, which means he can attack somebody. He can move. He can throw a spear, get over them and make more attacks and hit them really hard. Action Withering Stare, if he's hit by an attack, a creature within 60 feet, he bores into them. Talking about DC 20 saving throw or take 10 necrotic. He just look at you and do damage to you. Villain actions. These are the action-oriented designs of MCDM in particular. It's different than, than other ones. It's, it's kind of like legendary actions, but not quite. They happen one right after the other. So it can take one action once. It can't take these. He can take these actions in any order, but he can only use one per round. Action one, bloodstained. He causes blood to explode a 20-foot radius sphere on a point he can see within 120 feet. Characters who are, aren't undead in the area must succeed at DZ 20. Dex saving throw be bloodstained until the end of his next turn. Rogo has advantage on attack rolls against bloodstained characters creatures and bloodstained creatures have disadvantage of the saving throws against his beguile makes it easier to beguile and easier to action two: fire drake uh, rogar along with anything is wearing is turns into a large dragon made of fire when he is, does he releases any creature he was grappling and if rogar was grappled or restrained the effect ends he then flies twice his speed to an unoccupied space during this move he ignores difficult terrain doesn't provoke and and can move through creatures each creature he moves through dc 20 deck saver takes 36 fire damage a little bit of zip around as a dragon burn them up Again, you should be able to hit lots of people with it. And then he returns back to his arm. It's like the blood mist, only it's fiery dragon. And then the action three. This is the, you're really, you're really stuck in place. Mist of blades. Rogar fills an area with 60 feet of him with swirling mists that heavily obscure the area. He can teleport four times to any unoccupied space in the mist and make a sanguinous attack against each teleport. He has advantage on these because 
the the thick mist observes the thick mist obscures the area and he has blind sight so he goes up and bang 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 four different targets again you're not going to be able to pin this dude down and that's you know that's free action so he's doing six of those you can see why he killed a lot of characters that is Von Glauer. I am really happy with how he came out. I think it's really, really cool. I can't wait to see him in a big book that lots of people are going to have. And and Van Glauer is going to is going to eat well, I think. So I wanted to show those vampires off. I want to talk about the design ideas behind them. One of the things I didn't quite mention is the reason why the villain actions work the way they are is there's this concept of positioning and explosion. How do you get into the right position to begin with? How do you move around so that you're not going to get pinned down? And then how do you do something really nasty where you explode? The Mist of Blades is his really nasty explosion. Bloodstained is his way to do like a lot of control where he can, you know, force people to have disadvantage on saving throws and he gets advantage on his attacks. It also means that even if he's engaged with a creature, if they're bloodstained, he can get normal attacks against him. His attack score is really good. And the Mist of Blades is just like, oh, I'm just going to go around and hit all of you. You're all going to get hit by the Sanguinite Bite and all your hit points are going to go down. So he apparently killed a lot of guys. So... That's Von Glauer. I was really happy to see that monster and I'm very happy to show him off to you. And you will see it in Flea Mortals. Very probably one of, it might be the most popular monster book, third party monster book that comes out. I think it's going to be really exciting stuff. Every month I put up a new thread on the Patreon, the Sly Flourish Patreon site for patrons to ask any question related to D&D or running RPGs. I answer every question there on Patreon and I also take some of them to answer here on the show and other ones become videos or articles. Boris says... All DMs, no matter their experience level, have definite strengths and weaknesses. What would you consider your weaknesses? And do you simply try to work around them? Or do you do what you can to improve on them through experimentation and practice? We should always be improving. So I'm wondering what tips you have on how to do so. I think, so I probably have two big weaknesses. One is a glowing weak point in the lower right of my back. But don't tell anybody about that one. So one of my weaknesses i think is because i run a heavily improvisational game sometimes things can feel kind of fuzzy in the world they don't feel quite as solid as games where everything is really meticulously prepared and lots of details are really established those games can feel more solid but i don't think they have the same level of freedom or agency that a more improvised style game has so uh, there are times where i'm sure the players recognize like things are changing a little bit in how the world is being built. And that can feel like there's shifting sand under their feet, like they're not really getting their hands on it. I definitely think that that is one of the risks. I think that's also kind of part of that style. And I think to keep that sort of open improvisational style, it means that things are going to be a little bit fuzzier. So I think that that's, that's, that's a, a, a part of the, you know, part of how that, part of how that works. Something else that is in the same regards is I'm not like a tactical DM. I don't run games where I'm paying a lot of attention to exactly which monsters are synergizing well with which other monsters and what all of that is set up. Like I just throw monsters at the players and we see what happens. I know that there are both players and DMs who much prefer the idea of they, they definitely prefer the idea of having battles that are definitely more tightly built. And I just, I don't do that. As far as ways to improve, I think the more we keep our eyes open, the more we watch other DMs, the more we can play in other games, the more games we can run for other players, the better off we're going to be. And we're going to learn from all of that. I think there is a lot that we can learn from reading stuff. There's a lot we can learn from reading what other experiences other DMs have. I think if you watch other DMs, we can, we can get more information than ever from like YouTube and stuff like that. So I think there's a lot there that we can, that we can get. And I think that 
there's always like, you know, the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours rule. Oh, just do, do things. But there's also that idea of like, are you a teacher? Well, I had a friend who did this. Are you a teacher who is teaching 10 years worth of classes or teaching one year worth of classes 10 times? Are you actually improving your curriculum? Are you learning from the people that you're teaching? Or in this case, are we learning from each game and changing the next game? Are we running the same game every week for 20 years? Or are we running 20 years worth of new games? And I think it's important to always be considering like, what can we do in our next game to kind of change things? I'm constantly learning new things. I'm constantly learning new ideas. I'm constantly trying them out in my games to see how they work. I don't make huge changes, but I'll definitely make small changes to try things out and see how it goes. So I think if you know, that idea of run small experiments in your games, and, and that's something that I, that I, that I do. I think, I think that that can, you know, that can, that can teach you a whole lot. You can learn a whole lot from that. Kyle W says last session, my player spent an entire session discussing their plans to disrupt the final ritual, which will be a showdown moment for our campaign. The players seem to be enjoying themselves, but when sessions like this happen, I get a little self-conscious about my DM style. Is it ever necessary to push a session along or if everyone is enjoying the downbeat moments, should we just let the players drive their story? The key I think is that are you sure everybody's enjoying it or are people phased out? I think there's definitely something useful to say that you should keep things moving forward. But, you know, it, finding that balance is really hard. This is why Monty Cook of Monty Cook Games always talks about the fact that pacing is probably the hard, one of the hardest skills that DMs can learn. Pacing themselves, pacing the game, pacing the direction the players are going. How do you keep things rolling forward too much and it's just too frantic? And I've had games. I've gotten feedback from games. They're like, man... It's one thing after the next, and we're never getting a chance to, to really hold our own. Like, what do we, you know, this, it's too much. And then I've had someone like, oh, I'm bored. Like, we're spending a whole time talking to one guy. So figuring out that balance, and that balance is different for different players. So you don't know that one player is really enjoying having a game that's taking its time, and other else is bored. And the other person is like, I'm loving how action-packed this thing is. And the other people are like, I'm lost. I, we've, we've been moving so far fast. I don't know what's going on. So you need to get that feedback in one way is to ask them, are you guys happy with the pace of the game? Do you want things to be sped up? So in this circumstance, like never, you know, big, big thing I've been talking about now for, for months is talk to your players. And you can ask them, hey, outside of character, is it okay? Are, are you guys enjoying the pace or do, you, or do things need to move forward? And you could have something that like, I like to move forward. And they might not even be telling you. They might be telling the other players. Hey guys, can we just move on? Right? We're kind of bored. Or, hey guys, and I got this from players. Hey, I really feel, I, I would love to have more time to kind of role play my character and to interact with the other characters. I feel like we're just handling what's ever in front of us each session. Oh, it's good feedback. Let's try to deal with that. Now it's tricky, but you can at least have an open conversation about it. About do people talk about with among each other? Hey, you know, who wants fast paced stuff? Who wants slow paced stuff? How do you mix it? So I, th I think talking to your players is a big way to, to help answer that situation. Talk to them out of character. Do the, let's pause for a minute. Are we guys bored or are you guys happy with how things are going? Right. Oh no, we're good. Okay. Everybody okay? Yeah. Right. And then if there's somebody that's quiet, maybe checking with them. This is where online you can send them a message. You good? And you get, you having fun? Yeah, I'm good. Okay, good. We're all right. Kyle, I hope that answers your question. David R says, I th I'm thinking about running old school essentials game for my group that usually plays 5e. How do you pitch and explain the old school style as opposed to 5e? So there's actually a booklet that was written by, where's the giant book? Matt Finch, right? 
There is a booklet that has been going around for, I think, 10 years called The Old School Primer, written by Matt Finch. Matt Finch is the creator also of the Tome of Adventure Design, a very popular book of piles of random tables I've talked about on this show before. And he has this old school, this this quick primer for old school gaming. This is a booklet that he wrote about what does it mean to run old school games? And it has in it the main principles that you can think of most most of the people i've talked to in the osr world kind of aim towards this and say yeah these are these are really the principles about what it means and those are rulings not rules the dm is the one who is determining what is going on in the game there aren't fixed rules that bind anybody the dm can always overrule something depending on the circumstances that are going on in the game so and then there's examples of all of these things in this in this world player skill not character abilities instead of saying like roll a perception check to see if you find any traps oh you found a trap great now roll an investigation check to understand how it works you roll the investigation check okay now roll a dexterity thieves tools dexterity check with with your proficiency because you have thieves tools to disarm it right okay great so that's all purely mechanical the 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 osr the old school essential style or old school whatever revival renaissance whatever you want to call it is to challenge the players describe what it looks like in the world you've heard me say stuff like this like describe understand what the trap means in the world first that said i'm not opposed to having characters roll checks to figure things out because the characters are not the players but in a more osr ose style game the the players are what are being tested and their skills are being tested, not the characters. Did they describe it correctly? Did they understand what you you said? You know, and this is one where I'm like, well, that's not really the style that I that I use. I I do, I, you know, I want to I want to test both, right? I want if the player has figured the thing out and how to work with it, that's great. If they can't, but their pl- their character could, then I'll have the character make those roles. Heroics, not superheroics. You're not a superhero. You have to worry about how many arrows you have. You have to worry about your rations. You have to worry about getting actual rest. You know, there's lots of different things. You are not, you are a hero, but you're not a superhero. This is a difference with 5e. I think when you have access to the light spell, when you have access to create food and water, when you have access to things like bags of holding, you don't have to worry about a lot of the nitpicky stuff that you would in a more kind of heroic fantasy or you know, the, like you know, lower heroic fantasy game. And forget game balance. This is one that I promote as well. You don't worry so much about game balance. You're not always going to face an encounter that is designed around your character level. Sometimes you might face creatures that are way higher. Sometimes it may be way lower. You've heard me talk about this. I think that there should be... It sh- the, the, the creatures that the characters face should make sense given the situation in the world. Doesn't make sense given what they have in the world. That said, I would make it clear to the players when they see a creature that is outside of their weight class so that they don't just get crushed by something because of bad circumstance so tips for players this is a good list of all of the kind of tips of players that you could pick up things that you could pass along so i would recommend this list i will link to this down in the show notes below and you can take a look at you can take a look at, at whether that you think that that makes sense for talking to your group about it one of the things that i question is do players like osr stuff as much as dms do i look at old school essentials and i think it looks really cool but i also know that my players like their 5e stuff they like subclasses they like spells they like to have that empowerment i you know i don't even really even pitch it to them because i don't think my players are that bothered by all of the capabilities their characters have capabilities that they're not going to have if they're if they're running an osr game so that's one of the reasons why i think there's a split is that i think dms like osr stuff more than players typically do that's my i'm making that assumption i don't have any data to back that up but it's something that i would say but give it a try pitch it to them i think all of these ideas are also in old school essentials in the beginning so you can take those you can take those ideas and describe them to your players and see if they're interested in playing but don't be surprised if they're like i kind of like subclasses and i, I kind of like not worrying about how many arrows i've got 
Stephen W says, goes, I go by, we'll go with Stephen, on Twitch and Discord, but Steve is fine. Good. We're going to go with Steve. While most pieces of information relevant to a party's quest is found usually is usually found in the world through NPCs, events, or items, some is told through text, which when it makes narrative sense, like correspondence of letters or reading through a journal, how do you make the act of reading some lore or details pertaining to the quest like a letter or book engaging at the table? I would make it a letter and I would give it to one of the players and I would have them read it to the rest of the group. I think that's one good way. Another way is you can summarize the things that they find in a letter. If you don't want to make like a handout, I definitely think like handouts are cool and you should consider making handouts. But if you, you can definitely summaries of things that you don't make in handouts in a bullet list. Like what are the things that they learn? You find this rule and you learn a couple of things. Here they are. That's a good way to do secrets and clues. Whatever they're finding, I, I generally make it, they don't find a book. They find, they might find a book, but there's really one page that's interesting. Whatever lore you're kind of giving to them, I would make it no more than like two or 300 words. Keep it short. Keep it, keep it short and concise because they're not going to remember it. But that physical handout is great because you give it to the players and they can hang on to it and they can describe it. Even in an online game, you can still make one in like Word and screenshot it and give it to them as an image so that they have that image of the, of the lore that they're looking at. So that is what I would recommend. Friends, I want to thank everybody for hanging out with me today for the Lazy D&D Talk Show. I hope you enjoyed this show. If you like the kind of work that I do, you will want to subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter where you get a weekly D&D-related email sent directly to your inbox every week along with a free Adventure Generator PDF. You can support me directly on Patreon where you get access to the Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2. You get the City of Arches Sourcebook, a bunch of exclusive adventures, the dedicated Discord channel, the Patreon Q&A, all kinds of great stuff for becoming a patron of Slyflares. Very reasonable price. You can find the link to that in the show notes below. You can also pick up any of my books, including Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, the Lazy DM's Workbook, or the Lazy DM's Companion. Thank you all very much. Have a great day, and get out there and play some D&D.